Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. A decade before most of us were even thinking about cloud computing, Jason Shao and his team of co-founders at Animoto were testing the waters with a service that let people create and edit full-speed video in the browser. Now, Animoto's history of obsession with all things video marketing has positioned them as a solid leader in this increasingly vital industry. In this episode of Hack the Process, Jason will tell us what it was like leaving a successful career at MTV and Comedy Central to launch an untested business, why it's important not to say yes automatically every time someone offers you money, and how Animoto dealt with the challenge of shifting its focus while still relying on a well-established legacy customer base. Today I'm talking with Jason Shao, and he's the founder and chief video officer of Animoto. Hi, Jason. Hi, David. How's it going? It's going great. Did I get that title right? Yes. Co-founder and chief video officer. I don't think I've met a chief video officer before. What does that mean? Good question. Well, I mean, I guess it will make more sense in the context of what our company actually does. But our company, Animoto, is a video making tool on the web and on mobile that makes video making incredibly easy, kind of using a drag and drop building blocks and, and starter templates that we call starter boards. But it's basically a video making tool for businesses to make great marketing videos. So for myself as chief video officer, you know, Really at its core, it's being the resident expert with all things video, video making, best practices, and what exactly makes video successful, particularly on, on social. Wow. And that is a huge and rapidly changing field, I think. Yeah. So it's a very exciting space to be in. And I mean, if you just think about how quickly things have changed, even in the last few years, and even thinking about how things might change over the next few years, it's, it's, it's a fast changing industry. And really what we want to do is make sure that business, particularly small businesses understand, you know, what they need to know now that's relevant so that they can embrace the power of video and be successful. And it seems to me Animoto has been doing this for a while, haven't they? Yeah, we've been at this for 10 years. We've literally been living, breathing, sleeping, bleeding video for 10 years. And prior to this, I was actually a TV producer for MTV and Comedy Central. So pretty much for my, you know, 20 plus years of professional life, I've been working in video. Yeah, TV. I think I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's still kind of around. It's shocking the number of people I talk to these days that don't even have TV. Even that is just kind of mind-blowing, the fact that no one even watches any of like the main networks anymore. So yeah, if that's not evidence enough, you know, things are changing quickly. Exactly what I was thinking. But does this mean that you've been allowing people to create online videos for 10 years? Yes. So we were definitely one of the early pioneers. Not only that, we were doing it in the cloud, which for any, you know, kind of technical nerds out there like us, no one was doing it at that time. And so it's been really fun to kind of be on the forefront of video creation in the cloud and partnering with Amazon on all this and stuff. So we just believe in the power of video and how it's the most compelling and effective way to communicate, you know, what's important and to tell your story. And so if we can give that power to, you know, as many people as we can out there, that's what we live for. I know that a lot of people, maybe they can write, maybe they can record a podcast. I think a lot of people are intimidated by the idea of creating a video. 
Yeah, and really that's kind of, you know, the exact reason why we we got started. I mean, so this, you know, 10 years ago, if you think, this was even before like the iPhone, but a couple of us, we were working in TV and we saw just how quickly technology was evolving, how quickly the internet was evolving, this whole emergence of cloud computing and, and even these phone things, right? So getting smaller and smaller, the point that they could fold up and fit in your pocket, it just seemed inevitable that they would one day have like internet connection and maybe even cameras. And so it just seemed that everything was changing video was going to be what had to be kind of a central to all of that and we really wanted to be a, a part of kind of giving the gift of video to everyone out there and, and really we took a lot of inspiration from what happened in the website industry where you know maybe 10 years ago right not everyone had a website you had to know complicated editors or html or you had to spend ten, fifteen thousand dollars to hire someone to make a website and today it's kind of like with these drag and drop tools similar to what we kind of, uh, you know, what we took inspiration from. It's like, if you don't have a website, you're not even really a, a business. Anyone with no experience can drag and drop and create a professional looking website. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's our goal. It seems like it's pretty prescient to, to imagine 10 years ago that that's going to be something that everybody's going to need. Yeah. And certainly we did not get everything right along the way. But the fact that 10 years later, we're, we're still growing and we're still building new products and hiring more and more people is, is pretty exciting. So now, now I know that your tool these days, it's a fairly simple, straightforward video editor. You can upload assets, you can upload pictures, you can upload video clips, and you can put them together and, and assemble them into videos. Does it still look a lot like what it originally started out to be? No. So we have two products now. And part of the story behind that is uh, when we first started Animoto, and maybe this is not, you know, unlike a lot of companies that get started, we I mean, we still are. We're total just technology and product nerds, right? We were fascinated by the possibilities of the internet and cloud computing and mobile and all this stuff. And so we set out to build all this really cool video creation technology. And we have all these, we're building stuff that we got patents for and all this, but it turns out a lot of the stuff that we built along the way wasn't necessarily stuff people cared about. We thought was really cool. And, and I'd say for the first several years, you know, I, maybe it's okay to admit now but I think we had several years of, I call it faux success. We had a little bit of everyone using Animoto. And that sounds awesome, right? And, and don't get me wrong, like when you're starting a, a company, that was awesome. But it was like a little bit of everything. It was like business owners, marketers, social media marketers, travelers, moms, dads, nonprofits, churches, photographers, realtors. And so that felt awesome because more people were using this than we could have imagined. But what happened was we kind of realized, you know what, when, every, when a little bit of everyone is using you, it kind of means you're not really great at anything. You're kind of okay for a lot of things and you're not really doing things well for anyone. And we felt the strain of that internally because we were getting, you know, feature requests, product requests left and right. But when you, when we didn't know who we were really focused on, it just felt like we were being pulled in a thousand different directions. And so at some point, kind of about halfway through our journey, we said, you know what, we'd rather be best in the world at one thing than, than kind of decent at a bunch of things. And so that was why we kind of reinvented ourselves, created a whole new product that was laser focused on doing one thing really well. Because what happened was along the way, because we were serving all these different types of needs and customers, we were kind of building a bit of a, like a Frankenstein of a product. And it, it just both kind of from a user facing standpoint and technology standpoint, it was becoming unsustainable and just very confusing. So we 
set out to say, hey, what would be the product of the future that we would be scared that would disrupt us? And we went and built it. And so that is the product now that we kind of sailed behind and we think is the future of video making. What it brings to mind immediately is this notion that it's terrifying to have a customer base that is providing all of this revenue and providing all of this gratification for the work that you're doing, and then to chop it off and say, you know, we really want to focus and decide that we want to eliminate this group of people in favor of this other group of people. I'm really curious about the decision-making process in there. Yeah, you know, it sounds, it's on paper and then when you're on a podcast, probably sounds very, just like, oh yeah, we just focused and then we, we but you know, when you think about, there's lots of people who talk about, there's there's a book called Innovator's Dilemma, but it's it's basically like when, when your entire business is relying on one thing, why wouldn't you just keep focusing there? We just knew that the way that we built the product in this very, you know, in bits and pieces and this is like this patchwork quilt of a technology stack and the fact that, you know, it was just almost getting more and more confusing, was just not sustainable. So practically speaking, how we went about it is we actually had to carve off, you know, we couldn't necessarily afford to shift the entire company to just focus on this, you know, this new thing. We kind of had to do it in stages. So we kind of put together, you know, like our SWAT team, our best development teams, and we kind of put them off to the side and we had them start working on it. And we thought it was going to take a year. It took two years. And eventually, as it started to prove itself and we got pieces of it out there, we were able to justify kind of shifting our investment of resources, you know, our portfolio of resources, as we talk about, more and more towards this new direction. You know, we did it in stages. You know, we still have both products, but we're much more focused on advancing the new product. Even in terms of the user experience, there's all sorts of nuances of, well, how do you introduce two products without confusing people? And there was a lot of trial and error and a lot of testing, and we're still going through a lot of that. But ultimately, that was one of the most difficult decisions that we had to make during our journey but in retrospect now, just to have that level of clarity and focus for the entire company to know that every single person at our company is marching towards the same mission, the same vision, it really now feels like we are maximizing impact for everything that we're doing here. So what time frame are we talking about? How, how long ago was this new product of the future launched? We started talking about this in 2014. We, we started work on it then. We thought it was going to take a year. It took two years. So we launched it in the fall of 2016. So it's been about a year and a half. And it's kind of been a, a roller coaster ride since then. So it's probably been almost four years total now that we've invested in this new product. And we have a team of product engineers and designers and product managers of about you know, 60, 70 folks here. So it's a pretty major investment. Absolutely. And that's the Animoto that people are familiar with today then. Yes. I, well, people still use both products, but one is much more geared towards marketing videos for business. That's the one that we're seeing more and more people as that demand, as that wave really grows and more and more businesses realize they need videos to, to grow their business and to communicate you know, with their audience. That's the product that we're seeing more and more folks use, which is exactly the way that we were hoping it was going to go. So, How are the products different? And is there an intention to keep on maintaining the existing product for older loyal users? That's a really good question. I think what we've realized, again, in the name of focus and maximum impact, this whole space changes really quickly, right? So even in five or six years, if you're not staying on top of it, it can grow outdated. So it's just not sustainable to keep improving that product, you know, but there's a lot of uh, existing customers that, you know, still love and use that product. So I think we're obligated to keep it around for all the folks that want to keep using it, but we're not going to keep improving it. So I think it's kind of like, you know, keep it 
afloat, but really put all our kind of innovation and creativity into the future of the new product is kind of where we're at right now. And that SWAT team approach sounds really interesting because I've worked at companies that had legacy products that they knew that they needed to adapt them for modern customer needs, but they had a lot of legacy customers who wanted to, to stay with the older product. The idea of building a SWAT team to work in parallel without breaking the old product, I think that's an innovative approach to that. Well, you know, the way that I think about it in my head is it's not dissimilar to, you know, like a portfolio of investments that you might have, right? So you don't just kind of do one thing with everyone in the company. You have a variety of people doing a variety of things and you have the luxury if you have a team of more than one person, right? Then you have the luxury of trying to decide where you want to place your bets. So we talk a lot about our team and what we decide to do with everything. You know, we have a team of almost 100 people now. What we decide uh, to do with each and every single one of those people each and every single day is a decision. That, that's what makes up our strategy, right? And so we have to decide how we want to place our bets. And fortunately, when you have a team of, you know, again, more than one person and for us 100 people, we can think of things as a portfolio, right? So maybe like your financial portfolio, you don't want to put 100% of it into high-flying you know, stocks, but maybe 10%, right? So it's worth 10% to take that bet. And if it pans out, maybe you can start putting some more behind it. So we, we kind of approach it like that. We often think of our business as what are the things we have to do to keep the lights on? That's kind of like the investments you have to make. Then kind of what are the need-to-haves, what are the nice-to-haves, or what are the low-risk things that are going to deliver all those singles and doubles? And what are those things that are a bit more high-risk but you know what, if you get it right, and if you can be smart about proving it out along the way so that you're not just kind of going all in and potentially wasting a bunch of time and resources, but if you can deliver wins along the way, and contributing towards that initiative might deliver a home run, then it's worth you know, spending a portion of your portfolio towards that direction. It can be so hard sometimes for a founder in particular to let go of some of that creative energy and allow somebody else to do that work. I'm really curious how you segmented that for yourself. That's a, a great question. And, and it's interesting. It, the hilarious thing is in the beginning days of Animoto, when it was just, you know, we have, there's four co-founders here, me and actually three guys that I went to high school and college with, which is a whole other story. But back in the day when we were just working around the clock, we used to fantasize about, wouldn't it be great one day if and when we grow that we can hire people and, we, and other people will be doing this? As we grew and we started to have a lot of other people, sometimes we actually crave those early days. We're like, remember how awesome it was when it was just us where we just locked ourselves in a room for seven days a week and, just, and we were the ones doing all this? So it's interesting. But you know what? Every stage of the company, every part of the, every chapter of this journey has kind of delivered different challenges and has asked different things from each of us. And it's been a constant process of just saying, you know, what can I do best that will deliver the most value for each one of us, right? So for myself, you know, in the early, I was very involved with product. And I, I think one of my personal strengths as I realize is knowing how to start from something from scratch, an idea from scratch, a team from scratch, processes from scratch. And I've had to kind of leverage that talent in a number of different ways throughout the company as we've grown. And this is not me making this up. This is a, a startup wisdom. But, you know, as you outgrow different parts of your leadership, sometimes it's important to bring new experienced leaders in who have experience with that stage of growth, right? So once we grew the product team to 20 people, we needed to find someone who knew how to grow that product team from 20 to 40 people or 
when we grew that marketing team up from zero to 10 people, knowing someone who know how to take that marketing team or that, that marketing budget from X to Y. So yeah, it's a, it's a constant process of re-evaluation and just saying, what's the most important thing I could be doing for the team and for the company? That skill to be able to take something from scratch and really build it up, is that something that you developed while you were working with Animoto or was that something you brought to the table beforehand? I'd have to say that working in television was probably an amazing precursor for everything that we had to do in Animoto. And I have to actually have to say, I, I probably had the fortune of having my midlife crisis very early at the age of 25 in TV. And, and actually, now that I say that, hopefully it wasn't my midlife crisis because that means I only have about seven years. <laughs> but, you know, maybe it was like my, my quarter life crisis. But when I started in TV, I worked for Comedy Central. And I happened to work for this really funny show, Crank Yankers. It was basically famous comedians making prank phone calls, but then reenacted by puppets. And, you know, some of it was pretty edgy, not necessarily appropriate for everyone. The executive producers were Jimmy Kimmel and Corolla. And so you can imagine that the type of show was back then. But I had nothing to do with any of that fun stuff. I joined as a PA, which for those who are familiar with the entertainment industry is a production assistant. That's the very bottom of the bottom. And I was literally doing... I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this, but I was the synonym for crap work is everything I had to do. I was literally driving a white van around the city, making pickups, making deliveries, driving in from Manhattan into Brooklyn, picking up puppet parts, you know, to deliver back to the studio. And I had this moment once when I was I was sent to the grocery store to make, pick up some stuff that would make good puppet barf <laughs> and puppet vomit, right? Because there was this scene. And I was in the frozen food section, and in one hand I had frozen peas, and in another hand I had like frozen corn. And I had this moment, and I think I almost started crying. And I was like, I'm 25. I, I'll humbly say, I went to a good school. I went to Ivy League school. I went to Dartmouth. I, in my first job out of school, I was working for this management consulting firm. I was being flown all over the country, visiting these Fortune 500 companies. And here I am, age 25, driving a white cargo van around the city. And now I'm in a grocery store picking out stuff to make puppet vomit. And I was like, what am I doing with my life? You know, that moment could have really gone a number of different ways, I think. But I think that what I decided then is, you know what, if you could trust me with the small things, then you could trust me with the big things. And that philosophy really carried on all through my TV career and at Animoto. And also, I want to prove myself to be reliable, dependable, trustworthy, a person of my word, and not be above any anything. I'm not above any shit work, right? I will do whatever it takes. And TV is like any job. There is no perfect job. There is no perfect industry. Whatever you think is the coolest job, even TV or film, 95% of it is a lot of crap working about getting stuff done. And so working in probably one of the most cool industries for one of the cool shows and seeing how much actual crap work there was to put this cool show together made me realize that, you know what? What really defines you as a person, as a team, as a company is how you approach that crappy work, those difficult days, those challenging times. And if you can approach that with resilience, with, and like I said, dependability, trustworthiness, reliability, that is how things get done. And for me, how that played out is I was lucky because TV is pretty meritocratic and I was able to prove myself quickly. And, and that played out that I was able to prove myself with small things. I was like, I'm going to be the best damn puppet vomit finder in the world, right? And I approached every single crappy task I got with that mindset. And I was able to kind of make my way up in TV. And that value of dependability and reliability and being a person of your word was really ingrained in me in every part of television. There are so many people I've met in my life who love to talk the talk, 
but have no idea how to walk the walk. And so when we started Animoto, not only was it important for me to find co-founders that I trusted, and when I say trust, it's not just trust that they're smart, but it's trust that if they said they were going to get something done, I never had to think about it a second time. That kind of trust, that kind of dependability, not just in my co-founders, but in every person that we hired from then on out. Because at the end of the day, especially in startup world, it's less important that you get it perfect. It's much more important that you get it done and you get it out there and you learn. And you can only do that with a team of reliable people that are getting shit done. That kind of story, it implies that there's that crisis moment in your life that really turned things around for you and, and helped you realize that. But the thing about perfection and getting past perfection to getting things turned around and out there, I imagine that's the sort of thing that working particularly in, in television where something has to be turned around constantly, that would really be emphasized. There are shows that get taped in advance, so you do have the opportunity to get things perfect. There are other shows, I've worked on a lot of shows where it's a live event, like the Video Music Awards, where you're working for six months to get one evening super perfect, and everything has to be perfect because it's live, and you have a house packed of celebrities and everyone you know, around them, and with all these performances and, and technical things that have to go right. And so there's a variety, but you know, I think at the end of the day, again, that sense of dependability and reliability doesn't change. It doesn't matter if, if it is live and it does need to be as perfect as possible or if it's something that you can do over and over. The people behind it are what make it happen. So, And finding good people is a challenge. And it sounds to me like you, you went right back to the oldest roots of your own network in order to find people you really felt you could rely on. Yeah, it was interesting. So, so I have three co-founders. We all went to college and high school together, Bellevue High School. This is a suburb of, of Seattle. You know, there's a lot of wisdom out there, which I, I don't disregard that, you know, said so you don't go into business with family and friends. Two of my co-founders are actually brothers. So we're, we're kind of breaking all the rules, uh, family and friends. And I, I do think, you know, that you do have to be very mindful because when things get bad and, you know, there's finances and you know money involved, like, things can turn sour. So luckily for us, you know, we haven't had to get into those types of challenges. But where our previous relationship was important is, again, that the most important quality in a co-founder or co-founders that I think that you need is that level of trust and respect in, in their capabilities, but that trust in that they are reliable and dependable and will do whatever it is that they need to do at any cost, right? So with these guys, I had a long history with them. We've done a lot of stuff together. We're friends. That sense of trust and respect was automatically built in. I mean, we're kind of like brothers. We would have some, you know, when we get into discussions and debates, we get pretty heated with things. And sometimes when, as we, our team grew, it's kind of funny that sometimes people would be in meetings with us being like, are you guys okay? You guys seem like you're really throwing down. But we just knew that it was never personal, right? It's like in our best interest and the company's best interest to make sure we're always beating things up and debating and discussing things. But when we walk out of the room, it's not personal. It's we're friends. And so that dynamic was has proved invaluable to us. And I think, you know, if I were to start a company today and try to find co-founders off the street, man, it would be really hard. You know, because when you're chatting with someone or interviewing someone, it, it's easy to get a sense of their level of skill and intelligence. But to really understand, are they trustworthy? Are they, you know, are they reliable? You know, sometimes a past history with them is the surest way to know whether they truly are what you think they are. And also these people were at a similar life stage as you were at the time when you decided to found this because you were all around the same age and you were all jumping into this together. Yeah. And you know, the, you know, the, the story of how we started Animoto and, and we were like all in our thirties when we started, right? So 
So I, I kind of told the starting story of my TV career. But when we started Animoto, I was kind of at a interesting crossroads because I was actually I ended up you know at a kind of a pretty successful spot in my career. You know, I, I basically was at this crossroad. I had to decide whether I wanted to move to Los Angeles, and, and I live here in New York. And so, increasingly, I was being asked to produce shows in LA. I had a, an agent. I had was pitching shows to NBC and FX, and I had just sold a sh- show to Comedy Central. You know, it was like, well, why wouldn't you follow that whole opportunity and move to LA? And then, but the thing is, you know. A, I love New York. B, this whole concept of Animoto, I just could not stop thinking about. So we saw just how fast everything was changing and we wanted to be a part of that. The part that people doesn't really get talked about much is like that practical process of, hey, well, a lot of people have great ideas, but you can't just quit your job. I mean, New York and every other city that you have rent to pay, you have to feed yourself. So how do you do this? So and my co-founder, you know, Stevie Clifton, had an equally successful career in television. He was doing documentaries for ABC and working with all these Emmy-winning, Peabody-winning, you know, producers. And but you know, what we decided, we were so excited about this idea. We we're going to work night and weekends to try to prove this technology out. And so that's literally what we did. We thought it was going to take a few months. It took almost a year, especially when we decided this had to be in the cloud. And none of us knew what the cloud was, but we had to learn. And once we proved that technology could work, we knew that we were at a point that we could be convinced to quit our jobs. But then there's kind of the matter of, well, how are you going to pay your rent and how are you going to feed yourselves? So the four of us, we decided all to put in a chunk of money and it was to pay ourselves back. So we kind of said, we think we need to give this a year to see if we can turn this into a company. What's the bare minimum that we need to survive? Like bare minimum, pay rent and like eat top ramen for a year. And we said, okay, let's all put that in into a central place and then we'll pay that back out to ourselves kind of as like a, a mini salary. But that just kind of kept that level of accountability to make sure that we all knew that we had enough to survive for a year, but we we're all being fair because we kind of put in the same amount and we knew that, you know, it was just being kind of equally distributed, you know, throughout the year. And that's practically speaking how we got through that first year. And then the other part that maybe isn't so sexy to usually talk about is like, well, how do you raise money? A lot of people think, oh, well, you just go out, start asking for money, and the more, the better. And in fact, the opposite is true, you know, because the more you raise it, it kind of implies the bigger percentage of your company that, you know, some, that an investor is trying to take. So we had to kind of decide, all right, so we're getting through this year. If we want to last for the next two years without having to worry about raising money, how much do we need to raise? And what's that bare minimum? Again, it's all about that bare minimum because we don't want to give away, you know, half the company if, if we don't need to. So we went through a few different rounds of this. It was always that same thought process. What's the bare minimum we think we need to get through the next X period? So the first round we did, you know, we said we needed, you know, X hundred thousand dollars. We literally went around to family and friends, gathered some checks of, you know, $25,000. And then after we kind of proved ourselves far enough along, we went and got some venture capital money. But it was always like, yeah, I know you want to give us that much, but we actually only need this much. And it's that kind of conversation. So yeah, those early days of how we actually transitioned from a stable, sane career to doing something crazy like starting a company from scratch. There's a fun story of, yeah, we saw everything changing, but then there is all the practical life decisions of, well, we have to pay our rent and feed ourselves. And how do you actually go about doing that? 
that's a little bit of the process of, you know, which is not unlike a lot of startups, particularly in the tech industry of, of how things happen. That's true. And it also kind of speaks to the differences between the tech industry 10 years ago and the tech industry today, where it sounds like what you did was you needed to build up enough capital to go out and invest in the development of the product that you had envisioned, as opposed to today, where the model seems to be more like develop the bare minimum version of the product and then start seeing what works about it and adapt as you go. Exactly. And actually, you know, I was part of the whole first dot-com boom and bust in the late 90s in the Bay Area. And there, like, there was none of these learnings about kind of a more iterative process and prove things as you go. It was like, all right, take as much money as you want and go crazy. And people were just spending gobs of money left and right with no sense of kind of structure or process or discipline. And today, it really is much, I think we've learned a lot about not only the importance of proving things in a staged manner, but the importance of it's not just the idea when you're starting a business, you have to also have the business model. And so all of those factors together and proving yourself every step of the way really kind of allows for a more, you know, I'd say economically responsible growth of making sure that you can actually survive for those first few years because those first few years are, are a big proving gun and it's hard to get that flywheel going. It also forces you to do the work that you had to do in 2014, 15, and 16 when you were actually looking at, okay, so what does the audience out there really want right now? What can we deliver that really matches what the needs are? And doing that work up front, I think it saves you a lot of time. It saves you that shift in focus. Yeah. It's hard to say, like, if there was one thing I would do, you know, differently. Obviously, we've learned so much along the way. And I, and I am a believer that kind of every challenge of every stage of a company, you know, you learn important lessons at the time that you need to. If we, five years prior, had really chosen the specific customer that we really wanted to be best in the world at serving, we could have saved ourselves at, you know, some challenges and headaches. But you know, who knows? We also learned a lot in those first five years and built all sorts of video expertise that really played into our future products. So it's hard to say. But I, certainly now, if I were giving any advice to folks starting out, it's not just the great idea. It's, you know, making sure you have the right co-founders and team that you can rely on that are dependable. It's making sure that it's not just the idea, but it's the business, mo the business model that really kind of complements what it is that you're offering. And it's about, in a very iterative fashion, proving, you know, picking milestones and proving yourself each step of the way. And if you're raising money, it's about taking just as much as you need to get to that next milestone. And you'll be, I think, at least have some foundational principles for growing a responsible company. That's very well put. And one of the things that fascinates me about the early Animoto story is how you gained so much support from industry, like the deals you had with, with Amazon and with other folks. I'm curious how that came about. The Amazon story is really interesting, and I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily replicable in the, this exact sense, but... What, was, what happened was, you know, as I was telling you, we, we started to learn about cloud computing and Amazon was back then starting, they were kind of one of the early pioneers of cloud computing, which is basically remote servers, you know, computers located someplace else. And so there are a lot of people experimenting with stuff in the cloud, but primarily from a storage standpoint, you know, storing images or files in the cloud. But we were, we were out to do something that no one else was doing, which is literally rendering videos 30 frames a second from scratch in the cloud and eventually real time. And that was something that really testing the processing power of what could be done in the cloud. So really just kind of doing something that was pioneering. So we decided we were going to start with Amazon Web Services. And, you know, I guess long story short, we ended up being kind of this amazing case study success story for them. There were times where in a week, because of various things we were doing, we would kind of roller coaster or spike from like, 
they call them instances, which are basically like servers, but like from like 30 to like 5,000, you know, servers in one week and then back down to 50 and then back up to 3,000, you know. And if you think about it from a pre-cloud standpoint, there's no way that it would be financially responsible for any company to, to buy 5,000 computers and or servers and, and, and keep them in their office. Not only because that would be way more money than you'd want to spend on that stuff, but you're just not even using that most of the time. So it was just the perfect uh, kind of case study for Amazon and for them to kind of tout the power of cloud computing and the business case for you know paying for compute power or compute storage like electricity just when you need it and not having to have all of it around unused. So it just kind of, it, and we were very close in partnering with them and developing. They were very interested in how we were kind of pushing the limits of cloud processing. And we were on the phone with them all the time as they were kind of building out, you know, how Amazon Web Services was going to, you know, look and, and be used with other companies. So we really, we really were true partners in the beginning. And it just made sense for them to be an investor. And, and it's not like Jeff Bezos is like hanging out here all the time, having lunch, you know, walking around. But, you know, it's pretty cool to be able to say that we're backed by Amazon and that we were an early pioneer of cloud computing and kind of help them build up AWS. I think there may actually be a lesson for people today in that because what you did was you found a way that what you were doing could demonstrate the value of something that somebody bigger than you was already doing. And by leveraging that, you not only got their investment, you got their marketing muscle behind you. Yeah, I think that that is a good point. Maybe not replicatable in the exact sense of how we use AWS, but if there's an opportunity where you can, you know, leverage a new technology and, and it makes sense for you and it's not just something you're doing for vanity's sake, there's a lot of those opportunities that came up along the way where, you know, some company would come along calling Google or Facebook or whatever and you're like, why why wouldn't I do something that they're asking me to do? But a lot of times the value is one directional sometimes in those type of conversations. And we learned that the hard way too. There are a number of things we said yes to that in retrospect were like, oh, you know, is that actually really helpful for us? Or was that just kind of self-serving one direction? But there were a lot of things we did that were mutually beneficial. And not necessarily all of them lead to, you know, investments, but the Amazon one did. It was the right time, right place, right partnership. And so it was pretty magical. It also speaks to the importance of being very careful where you get your VC in the first place. I know a lot of people, as you say, go like they'll just take whatever money people throw at them. But thinking about where that money is coming from, what partnerships it brings with it, what technology it brings with it as well. I think that's all very critical stuff people sometimes don't think about fully. We thought uh, that the people that we brought on as investors and many of which, you know, end up being also board members or a handful end up being board members. We think of, we try to think of as critically as someone that we might hire to bring on our team. So, you know, it's not just for the money. It's about what value are they bringing in board meetings? It's, you know, what, what value is that individual bringing to the conversation? And so, you know, with that same level of scrutiny, like, do they fit our culture? Do they fit our principles of, again, reliability, accountability? We have other values too, humility, and we call them like betterfication and stuff like that. But they're, they're essentially a part of the team, even if it might seem like it's just their money to other people. And it's that concept that when you're interviewing for a company for a job, for example, you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. You need to make sure you fit with them. When you're going to a VC, that doesn't necessarily mean you're just going to desperately take whatever they have to give you. If they don't match you, you don't accept. And again, it's like, hey, when, when times are good, it's easy to work with anyone. When you go through rough patches or challenges, what is it like to sit across the table you know, with the people that you're working with, your co-founders, your team, and equally your board members or investors? So, Right. So with your own career, I mean, what you took yourself from working as a producer in television to co-founding this company. Did your co-founders bring business backgrounds to this? Did they bring media backgrounds? I'm curious how that came together. 
Well, so we have four co-founders. Here's kind of an interesting thing. The two of us that kind of got started with stuff, Stevie Clifton, who worked in television also. So the two of us were kind of the original guys that started working on this technology. Stevie, who kind of ended up being our CTO, our, our chief technology officer, he was like, he's always been like the technical guy that's kind of the author of all our patents. He's literally the, the smartest guy. You know, he's a total just genius. So he was the tech, he was like the smart one, <laughs> um, but he was building a lot of technology. And I, and I was very involved with products. So I was trying to shape the product and the videos. We brought on Stevie's brother, who was also very technical. The fourth person we realized, the funny thing is you might think that, oh, well, with four companies, how would you decide who wants to be the boss? And, you know, was that, but none of us <laughs> wanted to be CEO. We were like, Okay, we know the responsibility. You know, there's a lot of business logistics that you have to deal with. But a big part in the early days of a startup is about raising money and dealing with investors. And we just wanted to lock ourselves in a room for a couple of years and build this product. So the fourth person ended up, we were like, who's the person with the most integrity that we trust the most? You know, and so we found, uh, you know, our other colleague, Brad Jefferson, who's now our, our boss and our CEO. And we said, we need you to join the company, but we need you to be the boss. And so it all kind of worked out, but we're all very different personality types. We all have very different skill sets and it all kind of really worked out in terms of how we complement each other in the very beginning to just make sure there was some level of overlap and accountability. We'd always make sure that there was two of us on each part of the company just to make sure there was always kind of at least one brain thinking about on things. We kind of borrowed that from in the tech world. There's a lot of like talk of the benefits of pair computing and so we kind of borrowed some of those concepts. But in the beginning, when it was just a few of us, always two of us on something, that was kind of how we got started with the four of us. And it sounds like you did take a lot of concepts from how technology development works. Although now in recent years, I guess you've been focusing more on the product side. So you must be spending a lot more of your time out of that back room and up in front talking with users and getting a lot of feedback from them about how the product works. Yeah. And I, I think that's probably been one of our biggest growths in the second half of this journey right now is about... I think a lot of people talk the talk about being customer focused, but, you know, kind of starting from our realization of like, we'd rather be best in the world at one thing and not kind of good at a lot of things. And that starts with understanding your, the one customer type that you're trying to make successful. So that's the start, but then how do you actually be customer focused? So along the way, we've done all sorts of things really well, like focus groups and surveys and all sorts of product testing and bringing people in. But what I realized is that you can do all of that, but there's nothing that kind of replaces just sitting down and actually having a real conversation with a real customer. And that's something that we've, that at least I've been starting to do more and more in recent, you know, I'd say even in recent months as my role of, you know, chief idiot and being kind of asked to speak at more and more conferences and stuff like that, I'll just take the time to sit and have coffee with some of these folks. And what I realized is you learn so much more about the real world challenges and issues and questions that they're facing that you never learn in like a focused group or a user testing, you know, product user testing or in a survey. And I'll give you an example, you know, like I, I sat and had a coffee with a, a social media manager at this marketing conference. And, you know, and I thought I knew everything about all the pain points of our product and where we need to improve and what the points of confusion were. But what she started talking to me about was, and I actually had multiple conversations like this since it was, she said, no, no, I, yeah, I get Animoto. Everyone knows Animoto. I, I would love to use Animoto. It has nothing to do with price, right? I can't seem to convince my boss that we should be using video. Or the other conversation I would get is, oh, yeah, but we have a creative team 
and they just really don't want me doing videos because they just want to, they feel like they should be doing all the, the creative stuff. And so what I realized is, and that was a very common thing I started to hear is I ha- started to have kind of quote real conversations with customers. And I was like, wow, so a lot of their challenges have nothing to do with even getting to the, it's, it's well before they even get to the using the product. So if I can help these folks you know, help convince their bosses or help create a process by which they can work with their creative team or something like that. That's been part of the learning of what it means to walk the walk of being customer centric and not just talking the talk. But I, you know, obviously there's always room to improve, but I think that's probably been the most important part of our journey is really understanding what it means to be, you know, customer centric and customer first and actually doing it, not just saying that, yeah, we care about our customers. It's really listening to them. So has that resulted in a shift in your media strategy in terms of what you're putting out there? Are you like generating materials that a marketer can use to convince their company that video is not only worthwhile, but that they should be the one making it? Yeah, you know, you know, we it's helped us in a number of ways, understanding, you know, even within the world of people who are marketers or social media marketers or small businesses, there's a lot of different types and they all have kind of slightly different challenges. So even though we have a you know a very specific focus of small businesses making marketing videos. There are a few different types of those folks who have different challenges. So it's helped us to kind of segment and really understand how to speak to these different types of folks. But certainly from a marketing standpoint and a content standpoint, we're not just thinking about how to explain different parts of our product or new features. Really, the world of growing your business and incorporating video in your business starts well before you've actually started making your video and continues well after you've finished making that video with Animoto or whatever it is you're using. So it's really thinking about how do we make them successful video along that whole journey from how to get started with those first ideas, where to actually get stuff. Yeah, then making the video with Animoto, but then what do you do with that video? How do you know whether it's successful? How do you measure whether it's you know worth the money that you're putting behind it if you're you know, running Facebook ads? So there's really kind of a whole gamut of what businesses need to understand to be successful. So we have the tool, but it's not just saying, hey, here's the tool. A lot of these folks are wearing 20 different hats doing a lot of different things, and they need to understand video marketing and kind of a, as quickly and as efficiently as possible and really understand what is it that's most important today that I need to know. And so that's kind of a big part of my role is I know things change every year and maybe last year you said it, you heard it was Pinterest or Snapchat and this year is, but let me tell you what you need to know today and let me be your partner in helping you be successful. So that's a big part of my role. And one of the things that I noticed going through your blog and going through your YouTube channel and seeing all of the stuff you have out there, it's almost like you created the seeds for a video marketing university for people where they can learn the whole scope of how to use video, not just how to use your tool. Yeah. So that's one cool part is as a video company, you know, like again, walking the walk, if we're out there saying we believe that video is the most compelling and effective way to communicate what's important, then we should be doing that. And so we've been trying to use video in as many different ways as we can, whether it's live or on Facebook or on various social platforms or on YouTube, creating the type of content that people are asking for that they need to learn from. And it is like a, a, a university of sorts. We, we, as I like to say, you know, think of think of us. It's not just a tool, right, that we're offering you. Think of it as, you know, we are your partners, we are your mentors, we are your friends, we are your coach. So when I'm at conferences, I'm like, come find me. I will be happy to sit down and chat with you as long as you need to about, you know, whatever it is that you're challenged with because I want to make you successful. One of the things that interests me about talking with you, even at the stage you were at in your career, you're very clearly open to change. You're evolving. You recognize things are changing. I'm curious whom you've turned to for inspiration and for leadership, for coaching yourself. 
Good question. There's a lot of people along my my journey. The, the one person that comes to mind immediately that I that I cannot stop thinking about is I, there was one book I read in the first year of Animoto Animoto called Delivering Happiness by Tony Shea. Tony Shea is the CEO of Zappos, which is now part of Amazon. But before Zappos, Tony Shea he was a founder of a company called I think it's called like Linked Exchange. On paper, it was a very successful story. I think it was like in three or four years, started this thing and, and then ended up selling it to Microsoft for like, I don't know, $300 million. You're like, yeah, that's, that's the dream, right? But in the book, he talked about how he literally hated every single day of that experience and how there were even days where he like didn't even want to get out of bed. He would just hit snooze over and over. And I was like, that baffled me because I was like, dude, that's your company. If you don't like it, do something about it. It sounded like it was just that past that point of return. And a lot of it was just hiring a lot of bad people or hiring the wrong people or just a lot of politics, a lot of negativity, a lot of bad stuff. And just a kind of something that he didn't even really enjoy. When he started with Zappos, he kind of set out to do a lot of those things right that he learned from. But that always just stuck in my head because I'm like, you know what? We spend a lot of hours here and, you know, life's too short to really be doing something that you hate. And how sad would that be if I had a company that I could call my own, but I hated walking into each and every day. And so that would just really stuck with me about the lessons of making sure that, you know, you have hired the right people, that you're actually doing something that you enjoy, that you understand kind of your values as a company and that you feel proud to, you know, walk into, you know, each and every day because you're spending a lot of time there. So I, I think that story as a source of maybe hardship slash inspiration is one that I think about a lot and and really about, it sounds cliche, but the journey in many ways counts a lot more than whatever it is that may end up happening at the end. So really kind of making the most of that journey and being proud of what you've done each and every day. Well, you sound like somebody who's at that stage right now. And that's very impressive having been with the same company for 10 years. Yeah, you know, I mean, but it's the it's the best 10 years of my life, right? I mean, obviously we've we've gone through all sorts of uh challenges and and interesting growth stages and but man, I have learned so much in these past 10 years and I work with I literally believe I'm working with some of the most talented people in the world. And in some ways I I just I actually don't want this to ever stop. I love it and I'm glad I had some of those, you know, either midlife crises or you know, you know, getting to read some of this these books like Delivering Happiness early on that kind of helped give me offer me a little bit of wisdom. And that's kind of in why I think, you know, doing stuff like this is rewarding for me too is if any one bit of this was helpful to someone out there, you know, it's it's rewarding. I'm confident that it has been and that it will be and let's keep the ball rolling. How can people find you online and how can they participate in what you're doing? Well, listen, I'm definitely, you know, all over social media. It probably wouldn't be hard to find. I thought what it would be cool if I just set up like a, a page. Um, maybe I'll put one up, animoto.com slash hack the process. And I'll have my call, my contact info and a bunch of links if you want to get started with video marketing. But I just say if there's anything that you want to follow up with that I've talked about here that you want to know more about, or if there's just anything, if you're at that stage in your business where you're trying to figure out how to get started with video or you're trying to figure out how to get, you know, take video to the next level, get in touch with me. I would love to chat with you. That's what I'm all about. I, I would love to help you be successful in all things video. I just, I believe so much and I've seen firsthand how much video has done for businesses and want to just help as many people as I can see that success. That's terrific. Well, I'll definitely putting those links in the show notes. And Jason, thank you so much for joining us today on Hack the Process. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure and congratulations with the success of the show. It's been a real privilege to be a part of this. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? 
Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.